Father, this is our desire. Our desire is to be in your presence. What sweeter place to be. Your word tells us that in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Somebody came in this morning and is depressed. Somebody came in and has has had a hard and somewhat chaotic week. But to get in your presence, Lord, we are so grateful. Here's the reality, Lord. You do not need an invitation to be here. Because reality is you are everywhere. As Tashina read in Psalms 139, if we ascend into the heavens, you are there. If we make our bed in Sheol, even there, you are there. There is not a place in the universe we could go and your presence isn't there. But yet, Lord, we are inviting you to help us to experience it. Help us to be aware. Help us to acknowledge, oh God, your presence. Forgive us, oh God, for being cute in worship. Give us for the moments where we hardly want to lift our hands, despite the fact that you've been good to us. May we be like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when your presence filled the room. May we drop to our knees, say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone. I am in need of Jesus. Father, you have secured the right that we can come into your presence without an appointment. But all we have to do, oh God, is open up our mouths and we can come boldly before your throne of grace. So we thank you. We honor you, and we pray that you would remain in this room. It's in Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be here. Uh, Good to be here at 1130 service. Uh, I'm always delighted to get with you and get before you to proclaim the word of God to you. We have a lot of work to do and a short amount of time, so I'm just going to invite you to jump right in. If you can grab your Bibles, indulge me, grab your Bibles, and meet me in the New Testament. We'll be in uh, Colossians chapter 1. My boy Rich Perez is here, his wife Anna. Can we thank God for Rich Perez and Anna? Amen. Ty and I, these are our friends. He is the the lead pastor at Christ Cruciform Fellowship in Uptown. So we're we're grateful to have him and uh, his wife here. Listen, I told you guys last week that I had some uh, important information to lay before you. So I'd like to do that now before we get into the word of God. Some, uh, Some household items, if you will, that we need to talk about. Uh, Today is our first time going to three services, but I I think it's important for me to uh, acknowledge that um, the goal of keeping up with church growth for us, if if three services really isn't the goal, is is what I'm trying to say. It's really a band-aid on a broken leg. Our our goal really needs to be another space. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, If you go into our kids' room, Right now, it's filled with kids. If, if you go in our, our, uh, our 930 service, it's filled with kids. And so it's really hard to continue to keep up with the growth of the church uh, because of the small spaces we have. So it's not just this room that's getting tighter and tighter, but our kids' room as well. And you guys have been really, really faithful to uh, Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply. Y'all keep having babies. <laughs> And we, I love it. I love it. But that means we need more room. There's only a certain amount of cribs that we have into the, in the infant room. And, uh, and so to keep up with the growth of the church, uh, our heart and our hope is to uh, actually move out of this space and get into another space. Now, let me just say, uh, sometimes you can put the cart before the horse if you just start going out looking. But really what we need to do is really raise some capital in-house. We need to raise some money. And let me put my cards on the table really early and say I am not afraid to ask God's people to provide for God's church. I'm not afraid. And and the reason I'm not afraid is when you look in Luke 8, don't turn there. You can write it down if you're taking notes. If you look in Luke chapter 8 where 
Jesus, in the first three verses, Jesus and his disciples are being sustained by a group of godly women. And this is Jesus, I mean, the the sustainer of life, the giver of life, the one that literally could blink his eyes and have filet mignon and a Starbucks latte next to him, but he doesn't do that. He becomes vulnerable and humble enough to live off the means of his own people, hear me, that he created. And he didn't have to do that, but Jesus does do that. And so uh, I think the the Bible, the scriptures are replete with uh, example after example of God providing for his body and providing for his mission through the means of his people. If, I mean, it would be great if I looked in the bank and God dropped a stack in the bank, but he, he just don't work like that. Uh, he can, but he doesn't work like that. He usually provides through you guys, through the generosity of his people. And so the point I'm making is I wanted to present to you guys today something that you'll hear more about over the next uh, few months, and that is a capital campaign that we are doing here in the fall. That is our focus, and it's called the Spread Love Uh, campaign. Spread Love is, of course, comes from the hip-hop song uh, from the great theologian Biggie Smalls, Uh, but but it's deeply rooted in scripture as well. Uh, If you look at John 3, 16, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he didn't just say, man, I love you. He he went so far as to be generous. He gave. And so the motivation for uh, giving and the motivation for generosity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this Spread Love campaign, you'll, you'll hear more about it. In fact, those of you that have been coming for a while and that are members, uh, we have uh, your addresses. And so what we're doing this week is you should receive in the mail uh, a little information. It's actually called a fact sheet about the campaign. So we'll be talking to you about the campaign. Here's the goal. Brace yourself. We're hoping to raise in the next 25 months $300,000. Now, for some people, that's like, you know, that's unheard of. Uh, others, you can write that check right now. Bless God for you. <laughs> We need to talk to you. But the, but the reality is over the next 25 months from November, um, 25 months from there, uh, we will be running this campaign. You'll hear more about it. Uh, write this date down, November 4th. November 4th, which is the first Sunday of November, we are doing uh, what we are calling Commitment Sunday. Two things we want to see happen on Commitment Sunday. We want to raise the biggest offering that we've ever raised on a Sunday between all three services. And then the second thing we want to do is we'll be giving you a uh, little um, uh, commitment sheet or a commitment card that you can fill out and write what you are pledging to commit over the next 25 years. Now, this, we're hoping that, we're hoping that, what did I say? 25 years? The devil is a liar. The devil's a liar. I don't even know if I'm going to be doing this in 25 years. 25 months. Uh, my, my hope and goal is that you guys will uh, fill out that card and commit to whatever, whatever it is, and really commit to being generous, going above and beyond what you typically give. If you're here and you're like, man, see, this is why I don't go to church. He's asking for money. He ain't even getting the scripture yet, and he's asking <laughs> for money. Uh, I promise you, if you've been around any amount of time, our heart is not uh, about money, but we, we genuinely believe that all things are the Lord, and that is how he provides. And so you'll hear more about that. Let me lay one more thing before you. Because we wanted to raise money in a... Um, in an excellent way, in an accountable way. And by the way, uh, all, of our, all of the resources that you are currently giving to the church, and you are generous, 
All of the resources that you are currently giving are being stewarded to the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. Ain't none of it just being pocketed in my, my you know, I'm, I'm just not looking to floss off the church. I'm just not. Uh, and, and, and some of you might have had those experiences. And so I don't want to discount how, you know, you might have come up. But I promise you, we've been audited by the IRS twice in our short time of existence. And I'm never nervous because I'm like, our stuff is in order. You know, it's, it's clean in this order, and that's because there's accountability for all of our spending. And so we have a, a, uh, a Spread Love campaign team. You can show that, uh, the pictures of the folk. The, these are, uh, th- this is a group of people that will be helping us to make sure that we are steering the campaign in the right direction. And so uh, if you see these guys, make sure you pray for them. Uh, they, there's a lot of work that they are doing to make sure that we are really, really, really raising this, the resources but we're doing it in a God-honoring way. Amen. Are you guys excited? Because I'm, I'm like really excited. Amen. Let's get right into the word of God because I've spent a lot of time talking. Why don't you pick me up in verse 15, Colossians 1, verse 15, probably a familiar passage here. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, Watch the sphere in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Please underline this last phrase. It will become very important. Making peace by the blood of his cross. I want to preach this morning from the topic, this afternoon from the topic entitled Christocentrism. We will define it. Christocentrism. Let us pray. Lord, we are desiring to know you more today. The way that we get to know you is through your word. Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you open up the wondrous things from your law uh, so that we may obey it? Help us not to be good stewards at taking notes, but not applying. But help us to hear and actively seek how can we apply your word. May Jesus Christ get the glory through our time, uh, through song, through the sermon, and through our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen. amen. Christocentrism. If you have been here for any amount of time, been around the church for any amount of time, one of the things that you will quickly notice is our obsession with the work of the cross. I don't know if you've picked that up, but we are unapologetically obsessed with Jesus. And so one of the ways that you'll, a few ways that you'll pick that up is is by our centrality of Christ throughout all of our songs. The worship team gets up, we're very selective in the songs we choose, We we don't choose uh, a bunch of songs with a bunch of pronouns, enlarge my territory, me, uh, give to me. That's not our goal. Our goal is to see Jesus Christ honored through the work of the cross. And so we want to sing about the glory and the splendor of Christ. The other way that I think you'll see uh, the centrality of Jesus Christ is through the word of God. Our time of preaching, you would be hard pressed to come in here and not hear the cross be preached. Why? Because we believe that Jesus is central to all of Scripture. He fulfills all of scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. The book is about Christ. 
Okay, let, me, let me explain it this way. If you look in the Old Testament, look out through all the Old Testament. One of the things that you'll pick up is the Old Testament from Genesis 3 when we fail. It's, it's pointing to something. It's pointing us towards some climactic moment. And the climactic moment is pointing us towards is the cross. Finally, you get to what, what they would say is 400 years of silence where no prophets are speaking. But finally, a man named John the Baptist shows up with camel hair on, eating locusts, and he's at the banks of the Jordan River, and he sees the Messiah, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Then we see the life of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we get to zoom in on the work of Christ. Then the rest of the New Testament is all pointing us back to the climactic moment, to the cross. So in other words, the entire book is about the centrality of Jesus. Therefore, when you come in here and we open up this book, you shouldn't hear my opinion. When you come in here, you shouldn't hear my thoughts because that ain't going to do nothing. What we need is the gospel of Christ. And so the centrality of Jesus is not just through our songs. The centrality of Jesus should be through even our sermons. We take communion not every Sunday, every service. Every time we gather in here on a Sunday, we want to remember the work of the cross. That is what communion is. It's a symbol of the body and the blood shed of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you come in here, you see us taking communion. The reason we're doing it is because the Bible says as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Here's what I found out. We're so prone to forget the cross that we always got to be reminded. So we do communion. Why? Because Christ is central. He should be central in our conversations. He should be central in our, if you look at our core values on the website, one of the core values you will see is Christ-centeredness, Christocentrism. We want to heavily focus on Jesus. And he should be the language that we use here. What do I mean by that? We typically don't say Christ is first. The reason we don't say that, and we wouldn't look down on you if you said it, the reason we don't say it as a church is because if he's first, then that means he's a check off the list. Because I do my Jesus thing and then I move on with the rest of the list. We believe he's the whole list. He impacts every part of it. That means your degree should be impacted by the centrality of Jesus. Does that make sense? Your relationship is not in some isolated, you know, your relationship has to be impacted by the work of the cross. How you do community life. Your money, the reason I'm not afraid to ask you for money is because your money, you should spend your money thinking about how the gospel impacts your money. And so we believe that Jesus Christ is central. Here's the question you should be asking. Why this obsession with Jesus? Why are we so obsessed with this idea of Christocentrism? I think it's important for me to define it. Christocentrism is a doctrinal term that describes the theological position of one heavily focusing on Jesus. Let me, let me explain something to you. Our position of Christocentrism isn't because it's cool or it's sexy to do. We do it because the scriptures are extremely Christocentric. What did Paul say? To live is Christ. Okay, well, let's kill him. To die is gain. Like, he's always about Jesus. He said, him we proclaim. And so our idea of focusing on Jesus is because the scriptures focus on Jesus. Here's why you should care about that. Look at the scriptures with me. Verse 15. It says he, talking about Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Such a, that opening verse is such a 
biblically consistent affirmation. Here it is. God the Father is invisible. No one can say, I I can produce a picture of God the Father. You've never seen God the Father. No no one can say they've laid eyes on him. No no, No one in history has ever seen God the Father. Why? Because the Bible says he is invisible. Let me put some Bible here so you don't think I'm making this up. John chapter 4 verse 24 says this, God is a spirit. Okay, that won't get you. First Timothy chapter 1 verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Okay, you still don't believe he's invisible. First John 4 12, no one has ever seen God. Okay, so God in the Old Testament over and over again shows up in what we would call theophanies. He shows up in pictures. The way I like to think about this is he shows up as a movie trailer, but you don't get to see the full movie. Whenever I want to check out a movie, I typically go to YouTube and I put the movie name in and I put in trailer and I watch the two minute movie trailer. Now, that's not fulfilling because I don't see the whole movie. It just gives me a preview of the movie. And what God has given us over and over again throughout the Old Testament is previews of him, but we do not get the full picture. You know when we get the full picture? When Jesus Christ steps on the scene. Why? Because the Bible says Christ is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God the Father is like, we look to Jesus. You want to know the love of God the Father, we look to Jesus. You want to know the mercy of God the Father, we look to Jesus. And that is one of the reasons why we are so obsessed with Jesus is because he gives us the full movie, not a trailer. In the Old Testament, you see places like Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is walking, minding his own business, and he looks at a bush And the bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And remember what God does. He he speaks audibly and says, Moses, this is holy ground. Despite the fact he probably walked by by it the day before, God is like, this holy ground, take off your shoes. Movie trailer. That is not the full picture of who God the Father is. Or later on in Moses' life, when he, uh, in Exodus chapter 33, he comes to God and he says, God, show me your face. God is like, are you probably laugh like this fool? Listen to me. No man, this is what God says, no man can see me and live. What does he do? He puts him in the cleft of a rock, lets him see his aftermath, movie trailer. But finally, Jesus gets on the scene and says, you want to know what he's like? Here he is. And the reason Jesus can show us who God is, hear me, is because he's 100, not 100, 100% God. And because he's 100% God, he can represent God in ways that you and I can't. Look at this word that's used. Verse 15 says, he is the image, which is where we get our word icon from. He explains to us who God the Father is. And I know you're sitting here going, well, Genesis 1 tells me I'm made in his image. But, but here's the difference between you and I and Jesus. You and I bear the image of God essentially. That means you are a rational being. You are creative. You're able to think and make decisions. And so you bear the image of God essentially. But here's what I found out. You and I don't bear the image of God morally. God is perfect. God is sinless. Can we all agree that you and I are not perfect and you and I are not sinless? Here's what Romans chapter 5 will say. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus is able to represent God the Father, the invisible God, In every aspect there is. And so therefore, Jesus isn't only a rational, able to think and make decisions. 
Jesus also steps on the scene and, and is able to be sinless. Do you know why that's important? Because if he goes to the cross and he has sin, he can't die for your sin. He got to die for his own. But he's able to go to the cross sinless because he bears the image of God essentially. Let me put another scripture here in John chapter 1, verse 18, to say it this way. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Christ, has made him known. That, that, that idea of making him known is this idea of exegesis. It's, it's a preaching term, which means bringing out of the text. So, so in other words, whenever I preach, my job is not to show you something new. My job is to go into the scriptures and pull out what's already there. And what am I doing? My hope is to make the scripture known. Here's what the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is the exegesis of God the Father. He makes him known. He helps us to see who he is. So the Bible says that he is the image of God. And this idea of image is more than just look alike. Like I can show you a picture of myself, and that is considered an image. But Jesus says things that, that go beyond just a picture or a photo. He says things like, in uh, uh, John chapter 14, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Let me give you an example of this. My, my youngest son, many people say that my youngest son looks like me. That means you're going to be cute, son. I'm just, you're going to be all right. But many people say, that's a joke. Many people say that my youngest son looks like me. And, and, and sometimes, you know, people will come to him like, man, you look like you're a spitting image. You look just like, you know, your father. And sometimes I look at older pictures when I was his age or younger pictures when I was his age. And we look, we legit look exactly alike. Like, but here's what my son would never say. If someone says, man, you look just like your father, he would never say, I am in my father and my father is in me. That just would be weird <laughs> because we look alike. He's in my image. But Jesus is saying something so much deeper than look alike. He said, me and the Father are deeply connected. He made in the image of, he's made in the image of the invisible God. This is so important. Now, here, here's why it's important. Because many people will twist this verse to mean that Jesus was created. Let, let me show you what I mean. Look back at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Look, the firstborn of all creation. Many people will take that to mean Jesus was created. In fact, I've had this conversation before. I was sitting on uh, my stoop one time, and a Jehovah's Witness came by. It was a couple of them came by and wanted to talk to me. And I'm typically like, all right, man, you know, let's just keep moving. It's a long day. But I decided to talk to them this day. And y'all know y'all do it too. Don't act like y'all so spiritual. Like every time they climb me out, like, let me show you. Y'all don't do that. And so I'm like, man, let's, let's have a conversation. And so we start to talk. And I let them go through their spill, and, and then I said, man, just tell me where you stand on Jesus. And they said, man, we believe in Jesus. I will unpack that a little bit. Well, they said, well, we believe that he is a good teacher, and we believe that he had good moral character. I said, okay, let's just get there. Is he God? And they said to me, no, he's not God, and let me show you he's not God. So they opened up Colossians 1, verse 15, and they said, He's the firstborn of all creation. Two things you should note. This is what they're telling me. Two things you should note. He was created, and he was the first person ever born. And I'm like, well, who was Cain? Like, <laughs> Genesis 4 says Cain was the first person that was ever born. What the text is not saying is that he's the firstborn of creation. What the text is showing us is that out of everybody that was ever born, Jesus is the greatest. In other words, it's not talking chronological order. It's talking rank. 
Out of everybody that was ever born, nobody can stand against Jesus. Let, let me try to prove this to you a little bit. Here's what the Bible says about David. Psalms 89 verse 27. Here's what it says about David. I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That does not mean that David was the first king that was ever born. That is not historically accurate because there were other kings, including Saul, that was born before him. What that is saying is out of every king that was ever born, David is the greatest. Okay, let me give one more. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. This is what the scripture says. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. That does not mean that Israel was the first nation because they were not. That means out of every nation that was ever produced, Israel is the greatest because they're God's chosen people. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So when the Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, it's saying there is nobody else born of a woman greater. than He's unique. He's different. So the Bible is showing us that he's the king of creation. He's the ruler of creation. He is not someone that who was created. You know how I know he wasn't created? Because the very next verse says that he actually created everything. How can, how can the creator be created? Okay, let's get into the text because I'm getting a little angry here. I'm, I'm replaying this conversation in my mind. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, for by him, still talking about Christ, all things were created. Not some things, not a few things. Everything in creation bears the same label made by Jesus. Everything. There's nothing that you can look at that you can say, Jesus doesn't have control over that. No, he does. Because the Bible just says, is it in your Bible? All things were created by Jesus. That means when you go out tonight and you go to take the trash out, and if, the, if it's not a cloudy day, it's probably going to be cloudy, but look up at the stars. Jesus created the stars. Okay. If you look at the sun, Jesus creates the sun. If you look at the mountains in the vastness of the ocean, Jesus created it because the Bible says that Jesus is the creator of all things. Now, if that is the case, can we all agree that means he's created you? Okay, because somehow we think that, you know, we're out. No, you were formed and created by Jesus. That means in Genesis, God the Father spoke, Jesus created. That's what it's showing us here. It says here that for by him, by Christ, all things were created. I was watching this, uh, this documentary on CNN, and it was about this uh, vault in Norway. And this vault in Norway has literally 556 million seeds in it. It contains every seed in the world. What I realize when I look at that documentary, I don't say, man, that's dope. What I'm saying is Jesus created every single one of those seeds that's inside that vault. There's nothing outside of his jurisdiction. In fact, note the sphere in this text. In verse 16, it doesn't just say he created everything. It goes to explain what he created. Look at what it says here. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I love this. All things were created through Jesus Christ. And what I love about this, it's some of the words that are used here, like um, in verse 16, like, like visible and uh, invisible. Or thrones or dominions really is talking about more than just the physical world. 
Everything got named about the seeds and the mountains and the sun. That's physical world. But the Bible says he's created even the heavens. Did you read the text with me? The Bible says that even the angelic world was created by Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you why that's good news. Because that means that Jesus didn't only create Gabriel and the archangel Michael, but Jesus created even Satan. Why? Because he was an angel. And if he's created Satan, can I tell you something? You don't have to worry about the devil running havoc in your life because your creator has complete control even over the demonic world. Remember when, when Jesus, I'm going off notes here, but remember when Jesus was, uh, was coming to cast out the, the demon, the man with the legion of demons? What did they say? Have you come to destroy us? They knew their position. They knew they was created by him. And they knew he had full, because if he's created, he has authority even over them. So the Bible says the sphere of his creation is, is heaven and earth and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers all things were created through him. But what I love about Jesus, what makes him so dope, is that Jesus isn't only the agent of creation. The text is going to show me that he's the goal of creation. He's not only the one that created, but everything was created for him. Can we get in the text here? It says all things were created, verse 16, through him and for him. That means your degree isn't created to just bring you money. Your, your, your relationship isn't only created to bring you happiness, but it's created ultimately to be a reflection of the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. All things were created through him, but wait a second, it's created for him as well. Let's continue with this Christology in the text. Verse 17, I love this, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together, not held together. There's not a, this is not a past tense. Presently, right now, Jesus is upholding the sun in its place. Like, like, you understand, like, like, think of that. How in the world is it possible that the sun is close enough to bring us warmth, but far enough so that we don't burn up or freeze? How, how is it possible that that? The sun rises in the east and sets in the west every day. Like, you've never not seen the sun rise. You've never, like, it might be cloudy, but you've never not seen it get dark outside at some point during the day. Why? Because Jesus is upholding the universe even as we speak. So, in other words, his creation isn't some wind-up clock. It's not a divine, like, clock that he winds up, sets over here, and just lets it run. He's actively involved in his creation. When my kids were younger, I used to put them in this, um, this electric, uh, electronic swing. I don't know if you ever had that. It's like a death trap. You put them in it, you, you, know, you, you strap them in, and you wind it up, and then you just let them swing. And, and I used to have this thing, man, we put them in it. My oldest son, uh, when he was a baby, I put him in it. You know, I was a little neglectful. I you know, pop up a cloth and put a Bible in his mouth, and I go cook or go in the bathroom or do something. Every father know what I'm talking about, too. And so I put my son in this, in this, in this swing, and I turn it on, and I let it swing for 20, 30 minutes, and I just walk away. In fact, one time I did it, and I only strapped one seatbelt. And I came out the bathroom. He was swinging with one foot, <laughs> with one foot in it. And so that's why I said it's a death trap. But see, what I love about Christ, according to the text, 
Christ doesn't put you in, tuck you in, put your seatbelt on, and then wind it up and then walk away. He's deeply, he holds you the whole time. The Bible says, the Bible said here that he, that in him all things were created. He's holding all things together. In fact, let me put one more verse there. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There is nothing, if Christ stopped being Christ, everything would melt away. If Christ got off of his throne and said, I don't want to do this no more, everything would melt. What holds this together is not screws and some melted material. Your king, your savior, if you've trusted in Christ, is holding this together. The coffee you sipped on was made by Christ. Like the clothes you have on are made by Christ. There is nothing, nothing, nothing outside. The little from the minute to the macro is all controlled by Jesus Christ, and he upholds it by the word of his power. Let's keep going here because I'm running out of time. Now, this next verse gives me joy. It says, he is the head of the body, the church. Like, can I tell you why that brings me joy? Because if Christ is the head of the church, can we agree that I'm not? Come on now. Let me tell you why that's so important. You don't want me to be the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor. And if he's, if he's the head of the body, then the pope's not the head of the church. If he's the head of the body, the elders aren't the head of the church. If he's the head of the body, then, then even the deacon board isn't the head of the church. And here's what I love about Jesus being the head of the body. He controls what the body does. And I don't care. I love the church. I don't care how dysfunctional the church can get. I don't care how we have issues. At the end of the day, as long as Christ, the head is above water, because that's what I love about Christ. Your body can be fully submersed in water and you won't drown. But as long as the head is above water, you're you going to be all right. So what I love about the text is it's saying that Christ is the head of the church, and he's the head of the church. He's the sovereign ruler. We get our marching orders from our king, not from me, because I could be so, so, so wrong. Let's keep going here. Verse 18, he's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. I don't have time to deal with that, but that does not mean that he was the, this does not mean he was the first person that was ever raised from the dead. Again, this firstborn has the same meaning, which means out of everybody that was born from the dead, he's the greatest. He himself has already risen three people. So, so he, he's not the first person to ever raise from the dead. What it's saying is out of everybody that was raised from the dead, he's unique. Here's why I know that. Because everybody that was raised from the dead died again. Lazarus is dead. Can we agree? But I've went to Israel. I've went to the tomb. He ain't there. Like, it's empty. So out of everybody raised from the dead, the Bible shows us that Christ is the greatest. But let's keep going here. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that just means surpassing all others. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, look at this word, to reconcile to himself all things. It, the, Paul using the word reconcile here shows us that something was broken. You do not need to reconcile anything if everything is good. But this should, reconciliation used here assumes that the relationship has been broken, has been ruptured, and your relationship with the Lord has been dislocated. Really what he's doing is it's almost like you go to the doctor and get a diagnosis and then get, get the remedy or the solution. 
what he's given us here is the diagnosis. What is the diagnosis? That you and I, apart from Jesus Christ, our relationship has been severely damaged. It shows us that you're in need of being reconciled. You're in need, and most people don't see themselves as being distant from the Lord. I'm a good person. I, I, I get up, you know, this, I, I came out to church this morning. You know, I got up earlier this week and I prayed. I'm going through, you know, the, the whole Bible in one year. You know, you got all these things. I got a Jesus, what would Jesus do shirt? And, you know, I, I got a John 3.16 bracelet. Like, I'm so, I'm in this thing. But in reality is the question is, like, do you love Jesus? Do you have affections for him? And the only way to do that is if he comes and reconciles you back to him. Because if Romans 5 is true that all of us are sinners, and Isaiah 6 is true that God is holy, can we agree we got a problem? And we needed reconciling. So here's the diagnosis. You are in need of reconciliation. Here's the solution. Let's finish here. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, here's the solution. Making peace by the blood of his cross. The number one reason why we put Jesus as a central place in our life is because he is the only one that is able to make peace. And he does it by the blood of his cross. For some reason, we think we're able to earn a relationship with the Lord. We think we're able to be reconciled because of our good works. Listen, your good works ain't good enough. It's just not because even your good is a filthy rag before the Lord. What you need is perfection. The only way we get that. It's through a perfect Jesus. And the Bible says he does it by the blood of his cross. When I was a kid, man, I used to think to myself, why in the world was Jesus' death so gruesome? Like, like why couldn't, you know, John the Baptist was beheaded? Why couldn't Jesus just be beheaded and have it quick and over with? It would still accomplish the same thing. He still dies. For, but here's what I found out. Looking at a bloody cross shows us how holy God is. He will go so far to crush his only son. He didn't have 10 and pick Jesus. He had one son and he looked at our sin on Jesus and decided to brutally crush him. And here's what I love. The Bible says that it pleased the father to crush the son. He was pleased to do it. Why? Because he knew it would bring you and I in relationship with him. And some of you, let's not play the game. Let's not play the church game where you come in and you say, I'm good. Like, let's be real. Some of you don't think you need saving. Some of you haven't trusted in Jesus. You've been coming. You go to a small group, you're in DNA. But here's my question. Have you submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, not a proclamation that I trusted him? Does your life reflect that you trust this Christ? Because the Bible shows us after you've trusted him, he should be central. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Because there's somebody in here that needs to experience this peace. You, you just do. You're kind of going through life and, you know, you're doing your thing and, Morally, you're a good person, but can I be honest? You haven't even seen the worst you. The, the reason that you're seemingly a good person is because you probably obey some type of laws. The Bible says don't kill, or the laws say don't kill. If I kill somebody, I'm going to go to jail. But if there was a night that you could purge like that movie, trust me, you'd do it. And so what you need what you need is to be reconciled back to the Father. And the only way that happens is through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. Father, I want to pray for every single person in this room. Somebody in here is in desperate need of you. They're in need of this peace that your scriptures talk about. And this peace, Lord, we, we realize it's twofold. 
It gives us peace with you because we are violent towards you, even though we think we're not. But your holiness is so holy that even our good is violent towards you. So we're in desperate need of that peace. But we're also in need of the peace that comes through reconciliation with our brothers and our sisters. Because when we fell through Adam and Eve, it was not just our relationship with you that was distorted, but our relationship with others. The reason we can't pursue peace in our own lives is because we haven't submitted to the bloody cross. So, Father, I pray today for every single person that has not trusted in you. Pray that they would come to know you today, not tomorrow. Tomorrow is not promised. In fact, you say that life is short. It's like a vapor. So we need you today. And, and I also pray for those that, that have trusted you, but have drifted off from you being central, have drifted off from this idea of Christocentrism. We, Jesus is an afterthought. Jesus, Jesus is our fire insurance. When we get in need, we call Jesus. But Father, may he be central. May he be forefront. May he be the thing that we wake up to and the thing we go to bed to. We thank you for upholding us. We thank you not just for upholding the universe, but upholding even our situations. Lord, we should be plumb crazy. But the fact that you're upholding us shows us that what kills others, what makes others out of their mind, keeps us in peace because of your cross. God, we thank you. We honor you and help us to worship you with authenticity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.